Well, you know, I think James, the author's letter we're looking at, would highly approve of the idea of sharing food. I do have some extra food. I'd like a record I packed my own picnic, but I do have some extra food if you want some later to come and find me. And we're continuing in our letter, our pre-series, looking at this letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, found in the New Testament of the Bible, where he's telling us what does it really look like to live as a Christian? How does God want those of us who said, yeah, we're going to follow Jesus? How does he want us to live? And we're actually beginning to get near to the end of the letter. And so far, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know we've heard some kind of pretty strong words from James. He's really challenged us on some aspects of our lives. And so we might be hoping and kind of thinking as we get nearer the end, maybe he's going to ease it off a bit. Maybe he's going to gently take us to the end. Maybe on baptism morning, he's going to give us a bit of a break, make things a bit lighter. But I'm afraid not. Actually, today we reach what I think is the kind of most punchy, most challenging part of the whole letter. We're going to look at two listen-up sections where he says, come now. He's trying to grab our attention. He's sitting us down. He wants to make us uncomfortable. It's like those moments, we've all had them in life, when someone needs to say something to you about something you're doing, something a bit uncomfortable. They sit you down, they start saying it, and you know they're absolutely right. And you're kind of sitting there, you're squirming in your seat. It's hard to hear it, it's hard to process it, but you know you need to hear it. You know you need to process it, and you need to change on the back of it. That's what James wants us to do today. That's what he's doing us. He's going to tackle us on some really challenging aspects of what it means to live out religion that God accepts. And two really practical things. He's going to talk to us about how do we make our plans for the future and about how do we use our material wealth and kind of material resources that God has given us. And everything that he says here actually is an outworking of something he's already said. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Paul Edworthy looked at chapter 4. And in chapter 4, God says, or James says, that um, there are all these quarrels going on because of the passions and desires in the people's hearts. But what they need to do is humble themselves before God. And both of the things we're going to talk about today are examples of what it means to humble ourselves before God in order that we can live out religion that he accepts. So the first of those things is about planning for the future. And I don't know about you, but I am a planner. I plan my days, I plan my weeks, I plan my years, I get mocked for the level of my planning. I like to have a plan, I like to be able to follow it through. And James isn't here telling us not to plan, but he is challenging us about the attitude that we have when we plan. So let's see what he says. We're in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, reading from verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." He calls the attention, come now, he says, he's calling to people making these grand plans. Probably in his context, the original context, he's thinking of Christian traders who traveled around the ancient world trying to make a profit. They were saying, well, we're going to go to that place and we'll spend this amount of time. This will happen. We'll get this money out of it. But actually what he says applies to any of us when we make plans. Because all of us say, well, I'm going to go to that place and I'm going to spend that amount of time and this thing is going to happen as a result of it. But you see, he says to them, there's a problem with that viewpoint. When they say we're going to do this and that and that will happen, there's a problem. The problem is they don't have the ability to control these things. He says, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
These guys are saying, we're going to go there for a year and make a profit. He's saying, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring, yet alone the rest of the year. There are all sorts of things that just aren't in our control. And actually then he says, what is your life? If you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's saying you're making these grand plans about the year to come, but you don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow. Your life, he says, is like a mist. Mist doesn't last, does it? You wake up in the morning and there's a mist covering the area, but as soon as the sun comes out, it burns it away, it's gone very quickly, and you would never know that it's there. Life is like a mist. Life is, what we say, transient. It can be gone at any moment, and that's not in our control. And James, by saying that, he's trying to make us realize there's a big difference between us and God. We have an end. We, our lives are transient. They can go like a mist. But God is the eternal one. With no beginning, with no end. The one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come. And so he's the one who's in control of all things. He's the one who can guarantee what happens today, what happens tomorrow, what happens in this year, what happens forevermore. And so he tells them that's the wrong attitude to have when you're making your plans. And so that makes us ask, what's the right attitude? What he says to them, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The difference he sticks in there is he says, if the Lord wills. You know, right planning recognizes that God is in control and that everything is dependent upon him. The Bible teaches us that God created every single thing that exists, that he rules over them all, that he sustains them all. That means that nothing continues to exist apart from the continuing sustaining power of God. And actually that God is in control of all things. Our very lives are in his hands. And so how we plan reveals what we really believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Do we make plans which show that actually we think that we are unshakable and we can do whatever we like and no one and nothing can stop us? Or actually, do we recognize that we're not the ones who are in control? The eternal God is the one who is in control of all things. He is the one who is sovereign. That means he's ruling over our lives. And this doesn't mean that we can't plan or that we shouldn't make plans. It's about the heart attitude behind the planning. What is our attitude? What is our thinking and our thought process behind the plans that we make? Is it this kind of self-sufficiency of I can do it all, I'm going to make it happen, I'm fine on my own? Or is it dependence on God? And actually, I'm trusting in God, I'm going to follow his way. Ultimately, what he says will happen. When we make plans without placing them under the sovereign control of God, we're making ourselves to be God. And the Bible tells us that the essence of sin, that's rebelling against God, is to make ourselves God in his place. Does that mean that every time we talk about the future, we have to say, if the Lord wills? I don't think so, but it is saying we need to have that heart attitude. Because actually, you could say that every time you talk about the future and not mean it, and it would be just as pointless, just as meaningless. What James is saying is that whenever we think about the future, whenever we plan for the future, we need to have that heart attitude which knows this happens if God wills. But that also means it's not wrong to say it. If you look in the book of Acts, there are lots of times when uh, different people in the early church say that. One example, Paul, as he leaves Corinth to go to Antioch in chapter 18 of Acts, says, I will return to you if God wills. He wants to return to them. He's making a plan. He's telling them his intention is to do that. But he knows that all of it is conditional on the will of God. It's all conditional on what God will do. And I think this message that James is saying here is hugely hugely relevant to us as people who live today in the modern West. 
Because we live in a world where we think that we are utterly unconquerable. We think that nothing can stop us. We live in a world where we pride ourselves on being self-sufficient, that we can do it all ourselves, we can succeed in whatever we want. We live in a world where we tell our children, we tell ourselves that we can do whatever we want to do and we can be whatever we want to be. Friends, I'm afraid that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if the Lord wills. The Bible says we're to submit it to the control and the desire and the plans of God. And actually, the real test of this thing is when the plans don't go the way we want. When we make our plans and then things go a different way, things are out of our control, how do we react? And actually, how you react in those situations, that's what really reveals to you, where's your heart at? What's your heart attitude in terms of these plans? We need, James is telling us, to humble ourselves before God, recognizing that we're not in control, but that he is. And all our plans come under his control. But that's not what the people James is addressing are doing. He says to them, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. They're boasting in and rejoicing in. They're putting their confidence in these arrogant plans that they're making apart from God. And he says that because of that, he says, all such boasting is evil. And then to finish this little section, he draws a conclusion, which is almost a slight sidestep. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. His point is that what you don't do can be as bad as what you do do. His point is that to live out religion that God accepts isn't just about not doing the things that God doesn't like. It's not just about not sinning, rebelling against God. It's also about doing the things that God wants us to do. And here he's saying, here's a thing that God wants you to do. And if you're not doing it, then actually it's sin. It's rebelling against God. So what's the kind of practical outworking for this? How do we actually put this into practice today, tomorrow, going forward? Well, I think it means that when we plan, which is we do, it's good to plan, but we hold it lightly. We plan, but in recognition that we're not in control, that God might have other ideas, God might have better ideas, he might lead things in a different way. And that means that we're open to change. That means when things don't go according to plan, we don't get angry with God, we don't get fed up. It means when things don't go to plan, we don't do the wrong thing in order to try and achieve the ends that we want. We submit ourselves to what God is doing, how he is leading. You know, I planned to be a primary school teacher. Pretty much from the time I left primary school to the time I left college, my intention was to be a primary school teacher. My intention was to go to study at Canterbury Uni to do that. My intention was not to live in Hastings when I came back from uni. But God had different plans. But actually, I was holding those plans with a kind of open hand. And so when God began to do things which kind of showed that actually that wasn't his will, that wasn't where he was leading me, that was okay. And I was able to change my plans and to kind of see where is God leading me. It wasn't wrong that I had those plans. It wasn't wrong that I was doing things to try and step into those plans. But actually what I needed to do is make sure I had an open hand about them. So when God was doing other things, I was able to respond too. The other kind of practical thing about this is it teaches us we need to cultivate a heart of dependence upon God. We need to fight against the attitude that says we can do it all on ourselves and we're fine and we can be totally self-sufficient, recognizing that in every moment of our lives, we're dependent upon the sustaining power of God, recognizing that he rules over, he controls every aspect of our lives, everything around us, and submitting ourselves to him. And that actually affects the way you live because that means that you don't panic when things go wrong. It means actually you don't get scared that things are going to happen to you which are out of the control of God because everything that happens to us somehow in his great love and wisdom actually is him doing good, is him working out a good plan for us. 
So there's the first thing that James challenges on, which is a bit of a challenge. But now we come to the second, which is where he kind of really puts on those boxing gloves and takes us around the ring. He starts to talk to us about material wealth. He grabs our attention and he wants to warn us about the dangers that come from material wealth, from being rich. Here's what he says in chapter 4. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He starts, he's addressing the rich. He's grabbing their attention. And in his original context, he's probably thinking about landowners. Verse 4 there talked about landowners who aren't paying the people who've done work for them in their land. But this applies actually to any people who are rich. Which means we need to ask that question, well, who are the rich? When James talks about rich, who does that kind of apply to? And when we think about that, we might tend to disqualify ourselves. We think rich, we think, you know, millionaires, people who've got multiple houses, who've got fast cars, private jets, can stay in five-star hotels whenever they want, eat in Michelin stars, uh, restaurants. We think that's them. We're not the rich. But actually, the fact is that the majority of us in this room, compared to the rest of the world, are hugely, hugely rich. In fact, if you're an averagely well-off Westerner, you are in the top 1% of the world's population by income. The top 1% just by being an averagely well-off earner in this country. Almost all of us in this room fall very high in this category of being incredibly rich in terms of material wealth. That means that these are warnings for us to hear. But there's actually another question we need to ask about who this is before we look at what James says. And that is, is he talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Because actually it's a bit hard to tell. You see, the condemnation and the punishment that he talks about just sound like too much for Christians, given that the Bible says that Christians can never again come under the condemnation of God. He could be addressing Christians, in which case the idea is to shock us into changing our actions. But actually it seems more likely he is addressing non-Christians. We might think that's a bit weird when he's writing to a bunch of churches But actually, it's exactly what we see God doing through the prophets, his mouthpieces in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God brings his words to his people. But also, he brings these words against the nations around them. And actually, the nations probably never heard these words. But the people of God are meant to overhear them. And they're meant to learn from them. When they hear what God is judging other people for, it teaches them how God wants them to live. It teaches them how we can live pleasing lives to God, how we can live out religion that God accepts. So whether these words are actually addressed to Christians or non-Christians, whatever that, whichever one, we can learn from them, from the heart and message behind them. James starts with this warning of judgment that's coming to the people he's talking to. He says, weep and howl for these miseries that are coming upon you. And he's alluding back to Old Testament language about Judgment Day. The day when every single person stands before God, has to give an account for how they have lived their life. And then in the rest of this uh, paragraph, he's giving us four different reasons why that judgment is coming upon these rich people. And here's where we can learn some useful principles. 
The first reason he gives why this judgment is coming upon these rich people is that they have hoarded material possessions. He talks about their riches, which are rotting, their clothing, which is being eaten by moss, all their precious metals, which are just corroding away. The point is they've got all this stuff, but they're not even using it. It's just being left to rot and to decay. And he says their corrosion will be evidence against you. Actually, he says the fact that this stuff is sitting in your cupboards, in your homes, decaying, rotting away, is evidence against you before God. It's evidence that you're not stewarding well, you're not using well the things that God has given you. These rich people have hoarded more stuff than they need, and this stuff now testifies against them. And James actually says, it will eat your flesh like fire. As an allusion to God's judgment, he's saying this stuff is bearing witness against you, and actually it's going to lead to you experiencing God's judgment. You see, by keeping more stuff than they need, by hoarding all this stuff to themselves, they've kept it from people who actually need it, people who can actually benefit from it. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. The last days, he's reminding us that Jesus is coming back. He's reminding us that time is kind of at a premium, that this isn't all there is. This isn't the end. He's kind of thinking of what Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, don't lay up treasures down here on earth. They just rot, they decay, you can't take them with you, they don't last. Lay up treasures, he says, in heaven. The challenge that James is trying to set before us is, how much stuff do we have that we don't actually need? It might not be decaying, because the fact is that most things these days are made of materials which don't very easily decay. But what sits in our homes, unused, doing nothing, and actually by doing so is depriving those in need. He's saying they're evidence against us that we're not using the things that God has given us well. That's the first thing he challenges on. Are we just keeping too much stuff for ourselves? The second thing he says, the reason judgment's coming upon these rich is that they have been defrauding people. They've not been paying people for the work they've done. And this is where he talks to the landowners especially. Landowners are not paying the people who've mowed their fields and who've harvested their crops. And James says that actually even those unpaid wages are crying out against them. They're crying out to God and that the unpaid workers, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God hears their cries. He's saying you might think that no one knows that you haven't paid the guy who mowed your lawn. But God knows. God sees. Just like the unused decaying items, all these things are crying out to God as evidence against them. None of it is hidden from him. You see, one of the great risks of being rich is that we become so attached to material wealth that actually when it's right for us to part with some of it, we don't want to. And actually we do the wrong thing. We want to keep it so much that it stops us from giving it away. And this might be something we don't think applies to us. We might think, well, I don't hold back wages from people I should pay. But there are plenty of different ways we might do it. An obvious one is with our tax. Actually, if we choose to play the system to not pay the tax, we should. If we choose not to declare that extra bit of income, we're doing exactly what James says. We're saying this wealth is more important to me than doing the right thing is important to me. And those things, he says, bear witness against us to God. That's the second reason, he says, because we defraud, we uh, wrongly keep money to ourselves. The third reason, he says, that this judgment's coming upon the rich is because they're living in luxury and self-indulgence. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He says it's on the earth. It's an earthly thing. Once again, he's reminding us that it's pointless being concerned with what, what is now and not what is to come. It's pointless being concerned of what is down here and not what is in the wonderful eternal place where we'll spend eternity with God. 
When he talks about luxury, he's saying they've lived in this kind of extravagant comfort. And self-indulgence is the idea that they've used their wealth to get stuff, which actually then leads them to do the wrong things. It leads them to live out in a way that God doesn't want. They've got far more than they need purely for the sake of their own comfort and their own benefit. But what James says to them is that by doing that, they fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. Yet another allusion to Judgment Day. He's saying they're fat in their hearts. They don't realize that basically they're like farm animals who are merrily eating more and more, who are fattening themselves up, not realizing that the more they eat, the closer they're getting to slaughter. He says that's what they're doing by living in this luxury. And this is such a huge, huge challenge to us today, isn't it? Do we live in luxury and self-indulgence? We might look at others and say, well, no, of course not. I haven't got all that stuff and all that luxury. But then we see people around us in our very own towns living on the streets. We see parents around us who can't afford to feed their children. We see refugees who come to our shores with absolutely nothing. And we see men and women and children around the world who don't have clean water, don't have food, don't have clothing, don't have shelter. We live in incredible, incredible luxury. And you see, the problem is luxury is the norm in the place that we live. In the modern West, luxury is the norm. And so we kind of think that we have this right to it. Of course we deserve this. And we think that it's not fair if we don't have it. If we can't afford to eat our fancy restaurants, to go for holidays in the sun, to go to the cinema whenever we want, we think it's not fair that we're missing out on something we deserve. Actually, James says, no, no, all we're doing is that. We're fattening our hearts for slaughter. We don't have a right to luxury. As Christians, we're called to live differently. Our lives are meant to look different from those around us. We're not called to luxury, we're called to simplicity. It's something that Martin Charlesworth, who heads up Jubilee Plus, a national organisation, part of our family of churches, who help churches and Christians think about how do we care for the poor and disadvantaged, he says that we as Christians are called to simplicity. To live in simplicity so that we can use all the wealth that God has given us to benefit others. Not living in luxury so that others miss out, but living in simplicity so we can be good stewards of what God has given us. Are we living in luxury so that other people miss out? And then the final thing that James comes along is even more of a shock. It's the final punch, but it's the hardest of them all. He says to these rich people, they're being judged because they have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And we hear that and we think, okay, so has James got some kind of insider knowledge? Does he know about some great plot that's gone on in these churches he's writing to? No, it's nothing like that. All he's saying is that by wrongly using their riches, by hoarding things to themselves, by defrauding their workers, by living in luxury, they've as good as murdered the people who are living without. You know, the previous section ended, didn't it, by saying that to not do the right thing is as bad as doing the wrong thing. Here he's saying to not do the right thing with your wealth is as bad as murdering those who don't have. When he talks about the righteous person, he's almost certainly talking about Christians, which does mean he is here talking to non-Christians, but the principle still applies to us. James is asking us, who suffers? Who actually even dies? Because we are choosing to use our wealth wrongly. We're choosing to live in luxury. It's incredibly tough to read. Incredibly tough to be challenged with and to process. But that's what God is saying to us in this passage. And you know, on the flip side, the positive side of this is that we have the ability to make a huge difference through our material resources. 
I heard something a few years ago which kind of totally transformed the way I think about money and material possessions. Someone just said that even if you live in this country for your, all your life as a kind of fairly modest earner, even if you're a modest earner throughout all your lives, actually through the course of your life, tens or hundreds of thousands, probably actually millions of pounds, will come through your bank balance. You might think that right now you can't do very much, but actually over the course of your life, if you earn an average kind of salary in this country, you will have millions of pounds at your disposal to do good with. The challenge is how we think in that long term. It might seem that you're doing a tiny thing. It might seem insignificant. But actually, over the course of doing that for many years, we can make a huge, huge difference. So is James telling us that it's wrong to be rich? Well, not exactly. He's telling us that it's not being rich, having riches that's wrong. It's thinking about how we use it. It's thinking about the heart attitude that it cultivates in us. It's that question of, are we being a good steward? That means, are we using what God has given us well? But also, friends, I just feel we need to recognize and be careful not to use that distinction between being rich and how we use our riches as an excuse to get ourselves off the hook. The Bible is incredibly radical about material possessions. Jesus was incredibly radical. And the first response of most Christians in the modern West is to say, but of course he's not saying it's wrong to be rich, he's just talking about what you do with those riches, which is true. But the risk is that we use that to lull ourselves into a false sense of security. The reality is it's incredibly, incredibly hard to be materially rich and not to fall into these temptations. That's exactly what Jesus told us. Jesus said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And almost frustratingly, the Bible doesn't give us the details of the questions we now want to ask. What about savings? Is it right to save? How much can I save? What about insurance? When do we have too much stuff? What counts as necessity? What counts as luxury? The Bible doesn't give us answers to those questions. They're things that we as individuals have to seek God for, for the answers of how do we live this out? How do we apply this? But let me say two things which I think help us, two kind of, I guess, parameters which help us as we seek to do that. The first is that our lives as those who follow Jesus should look different to the lives of people who don't follow Jesus. We know that we don't have a right to luxury, but actually we're called to use what God has given us to bless other people. So the first question is to ask yourself is how does your life in regards to how you use material wealth look differently because you follow Jesus compared to those you know who don't follow Jesus? The second thing to say is just that we are called to be radical. The overriding message of the Bible about money and material wealth is that we're called to be radical. Our temptation always is to downplay that radical side of the message. Well, actually, I think Jesus would be telling us to play it up, to really listen to it. And, you know, we can do that. Because actually our security is not based on our bank balance or our paycheck or anything like that. It's based in God, our loving Father who's promised to provide for our needs, who promises to do us good, who promises that one who's in control of our plans is the one who also helps us, gives us what we need. We need to have that eternal perspective. So we're not trying to get the most here. We're not trying to eat and drink and be merry today because tomorrow we die. Actually, we're saying this is only temporary. And actually what's coming is far better. We're investing in the future our eternal uh, home, rather than now. There's lots to take in here. There's lots and lots for us to work through. But let me say one other thing that's really important. If you're a Christian here today, you're a follower of Jesus, James is not writing this 
so that you go away feeling condemned and feeling like you're an utter failure and feeling like God doesn't love you and God doesn't want to be in relationship with you. Because actually the wonderful truth is that Jesus has dealt with that condemnation. The wonderful truth, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, is that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. We don't have a right to luxury. Jesus is the one who for all eternity has had a right to luxury. And yet he willingly left that luxury. He willingly left God's heavenly palace, God's heavenly throne. He came down to earth. He became poor. He took on the form of a man. He became poor. He lived like a fairly poor person in Palestine. He took upon himself all those miseries that we deserve, all those things that James just talked about, the miseries and the fire and the fattening for the day of slaughter. Jesus took them upon himself in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we, who were poor in a spiritual sense, might become rich, that we might have all the spiritual blessings, all that God wants for us. Friend, if you're a Christian here today, God isn't condemning you. He might be really, really challenging you. He might want you to radically change the way you live your life. But he's not telling you he doesn't love you, or he's not for you, and he's not with you. But friends, also, if you're not a Christian here today, the Bible says you are under the condemnation of God. He said that we all turn our hearts away from God, and God, the one who made us and loves us, deserves all our worship and praise, but we worship and praise created things down here. But that truth is true for you too. Jesus left the luxury of heaven. He became poor so that from your poverty you might gain riches from him. Friend, if that's you this morning, don't miss the opportunity to find out more. Come and talk to me, come and talk to someone at the front at the end. We still love to talk with you. If you'd like, we can pray with you to tell you more about this wonderful Jesus, how he loves to rescue us and transform us. I'm going to invite the band to start coming back up. Let me give you one last bit of advice. How on earth do we go and process all this stuff? I think there are three things we could profitably do today over the next couple of days. The first thing is take some time with God. Spend some time with God. Ask him, what is it that he wants you to do in response to this? How is it that he wants you to change the way you plan your life or change the way you use your material resources? Where do you need to make changes? Then the second thing is talk to someone else. If you're married, talk with your spouse. If you're not, find a good friend you can talk with. I don't understand, okay, this weird English thing about not talking about money. In the kingdom of God, we're meant to spur each other on and challenge each other. Talk about what is God challenging you to do? And when you do that, don't say to each other, well, it's okay to be rich, but it's what you do with it. Challenge each other to be radical, to do what God is calling us to do. And then take action. Okay, don't arrive next Sunday and think, oh yeah, Andrew spoke about material wealth and think you haven't changed anything in your life. Take action this week. God is calling us to act radically, to change how we live radically. We're going to sing a song in a moment, which is going to be it's an opportunity for God to speak to us. For us to say, Holy Spirit, what is it from this message you want to put into my heart? Where in my life do I need to change? What are you challenging me on? Can I invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand with me? I'm going to pray for us and the band will lead us in that. If you've got children who are in Energy or in Tots Club, please, as we sing this next song, go and collect them, bring them back in to join us, and then we're going to be all together as a family as we celebrate with these three wonderful guys who are being baptised. Let me pray for us before we worship. Father God, we say that we want to live out religion that you accept. Father, in our heart attitude behind our planning and our thinking about the future, in our heart attitude and our actions in relation to our material wealth, we want to follow you. We want to be radical followers of Jesus who've been transformed by you and who live that out 
who make that evident in our lives. And we just pray right now, Holy Spirit, come speak to us. I pray, come to each heart, come challenge us about the things we need to do, the changes we need to make. Come bring those pokes and those prods where there are things you are not happy with that we might be able to change. And Lord, will we be a people who are radical in our living out of your vision to live out religion that you accept? And Father, I also pray, would you come by your Holy Spirit and would you work into our hearts the wonderful truth that Jesus, you who were rich, became poor for us in order that we in our poverty might become rich. I pray we wouldn't leave this place with a sense of condemnation, hanging our heads in shame, but actually with our heads held high. No, no, no. Jesus has taken it away. Jesus has made me abundantly spiritually rich and I'm going to live rightly in response to him. Holy Spirit, just come and do your work among us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.